Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 in preparation for partaking of the Lord's table. And I'll be reading verses 14 through 16. And this will be a two-part message this Lord's Day evening, and then God willing, next month as we come to the table of the Lord, we will continue in this passage of Scripture. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are two exhortations found in these verses. One is in verse 14, let us hold fast. And the second exhortation is in verse 16, let us draw near. Two exhortations. And the rest of the content of these verses tell us why we can hold fast and draw near, how we can hold fast and draw near, on what basis we can hold fast and draw near, and through whom we can hold fast and draw near. And in the process of telling us why, how, on what basis, and through whom we can hold fast and draw near, the glory of Jesus Christ is put on display. Now before we get into these specific verses, consider the immediate context The therefore in verse 14 shows us that there is a connection between these verses that I just read and what precedes them. Verses 14 to 16 come after a comprehensive statement on the nature and character of the word of God. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now these can be frightening words. God is at work and his word is at work. It is living and active. And what is the word doing? Well, the word of God exposes our hearts. It lays bare our thoughts and even our very motives. It lays us bare before him so that there are no secrets. Nothing is hidden from him. Everything, it says, is open and laid bare before God. And we must all give an account to him. He is the one with whom we have to do. That is to whom we must give an account. We are accountable to God. And this should arrest our souls. We should wonder how anyone can stand before a holy God 
and not be consumed by his holy wrath, for we are sinners through and through. My sin is evident in every part of my being, even that which is unseen by men, but not unseen by God, my desires, my thoughts, my intentions, my motives. It's not hidden from God. And so as we read verses 12 and 13, that should be concerning and maybe even alarming if it were not for a person, namely Jesus Christ. So then in that context, verses 14 through 16 are very comforting words. Yes, the word of God lays us bare, even our thoughts and our motives, the intentions of our hearts. We will give an account to God, but we have a great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, a high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His saving mediatorial work gives me comfort and it gives me strength, therefore, to hold fast For there is one who is holding on to me. His saving work is the grounds for the forgiveness of my sin in order that I might come into God's presence, laid bare, but yet forgiven. For by the life and blood of Jesus, my great and sympathetic high priest, I may draw near to God's throne and it be a throne of grace rather than a throne of wrath. It is a mercy seat, not a judgment seat for the believer. It is there where Christ is, my righteousness, my advocate, that I find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Martin Luther said this of the contrast between verses 12 to 13 and then verses 14 to 16. He said, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. After pouring wine into our wound, he now pours oil. For it is because of Jesus Christ that I can hold fast and I can draw near. So consider the first exhortation found in verse 14. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast. Hold tightly. But I'm a sinner. How can I hold fast? What confidence do I have? the writer would say your confidence is Jesus your great high priest he is the son of God he has passed through the heavens he is the God man and this one is your high priest your representative your mediator indeed your propitiation your righteousness your savior therefore hold fast your confession. Hold fast comes from a Greek word that means to seize, to grasp, to hold firmly to, and to continue to cling to something. This word reminds us that the Christian life is not easy. We need to hold fast. We need to hold tightly 
for the Christian life is full of dangers. It's full of enemies, toils, snares, temptations. Therefore, cling tightly, hold on and hold fast. But we all understand that what you hold on to must be strong enough to sustain you. We do not cling to a tiny spider web. We cling to a person who is able to sustain us and able to keep us. And that person is Jesus Christ, whom we confess. Cling tightly to your confession of faith by resting in the object of your confession and the object of your faith, namely, Jesus, the Son of God. And while grammatically, the main clause of verse 14 is, let us hold fast. The focus of the verse is found in the person, Jesus, the Son of God. The focus is indeed on a person. You can't come before God on your own. Your sin precedes you. Your sin comes with you unless you've been washed by the blood of Christ. And that blood has propitiated the holy wrath of God. But since we have a great high priest, hold fast. Sometimes we might think, well, I can hold fast if there's a reason. Well, there is a reason. The reason is the person, Jesus, the Son of God. Hang on by faith in the one who is the object of your confession. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is. Many of you know, you've read it, or you were here when I preached through the epistle to the Hebrews. He's exalting Christ. He's pointing them to Christ. He continues to tell them to look to Christ. He's magnifying the glories of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In chapter 10, verse 23, he will write, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We don't waver because of the one we confess, the one that we profess, the one who is the object of our faith. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in Jesus, the Son of God. He is the sole object of our confession, the sole object of our faith. And so hold fast to, cling tightly to, and do not let go of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is our confession. And why? What is the reason? He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, since we have, because Something is true. Let us hold fast our confession. What is true? We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. And so really the reason, again, goes back to the person you hold fast because of the person we confess. And this person is a high priest. We have a high priest so the writer here comes to a subject that he's already addressed in Hebrews in chapter 2. Just turn over a couple of chapters to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where he writes, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in what in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's a high priest. And what is the role of a high priest? Well, in the Old Testament, the high priest was a representative. A representative of the people before God. And if we are to draw near to him, which you'll talk about in chapter 4, verse 16, then we need a representative. We need this high priest. And so the basic role of a priest in the Old Testament was to be a representative of the people of God, before God. Another word that you find in the scriptures is a mediator. We need a mediator because we're sinful and God is holy. And there is one mediator. One mediator between God and man. Jesus. So all the Old Testament priests pointed to and typified the one who would be our mediator, the one who would be our representative. And notice the character of the priesthood of Jesus. It says in chapter 2, verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Notice the words merciful and faithful. This is the character of the high priesthood of Jesus. He's merciful. He cares for those he represents. He's not aloof. He's not distance from his people. He identifies with them. He calls them his brethren. Chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He's a faithful high priest. That is, he's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's reliable. He did what he was sent to do. He carried out and fulfilled the divine decree to save sinners. Jesus, our high priest, is not like sinful men. He's completely trustworthy. He's wholly reliable. And he never wavers. Sinners break their promises. Jesus never does. Men change. Jesus never changes. The writer to the Hebrews will say he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sinners fell. Jesus is unfailing. Again, chapter 2, verse 17 says that he was and is a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Just a sympathetic high priest would not be enough. He must be a sympathetic high priest who gives attention to things pertaining to God. We don't simply need a sympathizer. We need a savior. Sinners need one who will give them aid before a holy God. We need a high priest who will deal with those things pertaining to our relationship to God. And that's what the writer speaks of in chapter 2 verse 17 when he uses these words to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To propitiate means to satisfy someone's anger. God is righteously angry. He has a holy wrath towards sin. But Jesus makes propitiation. He atones for it. He satisfies the holy wrath of God for his people. Back in chapter 4, 
Notice again how he's described, Jesus, the Son of God. And we're just considering the person, who he is. Jesus, the Son of God. Now that emphasizes both his humanity and his deity. Truly God and truly man. Jesus, the name given to him at his birth. Yahweh saves. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born to the Virgin Mary. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He shared our humanity. And therefore our mediators described this way in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 2 verse 9 it says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He became a man. But this one who was born in Bethlehem was indeed born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, so that his name would be also called Emmanuel, God with us. The writer to the Hebrews goes through great lengths in this letter to proclaim Jesus not just in his humanity, but as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who then humbled himself and became a man, truly God, truly man, two natures, one person. So the words Jesus, the Son of God, again proclaim his person. But in chapter 4, verse 14, notice also the place that is mentioned. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and notice this phrase, who has passed through the heavens. Now you might read that, and I think I even did it with my hands a minute ago when I read those words going from top to bottom as if it's talking about he passed through the heavens, his incarnation, he came down. This is actually a reference to the fact that having finished the work he came to do, he passed through the heavens in his ascension. So it's actually a, re- a reference to the great high priest. Jesus became a man. He lived a righteous life. He fulfilled our righteousness. He became our righteousness. And he went to the cross, the sinless Savior, to make propitiation as a substitute for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He passed through the heavens. And the emphasis here is the place where he is now. He passed through the heavens, from this earth, and into heaven. After he finished the work he was sent to do. And the reference to the place where he now is, where he now dwells, is really to a reference, a reference to the efficacy of his saving work as our high priest. Yes, he became a man. He humbled himself. But having fulfilled all righteousness... He was crucified. He laid down his life, our substitute, making propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God. He was buried, but on the third day, he was raised, declared the Son of God with power. He was raised on account of our justification, Romans 4, verse 25. The resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. It declared that his sacrifice indeed was efficacious, But then he ascends into heaven, received into the presence of the Father, seated at his right hand, exalted over all. He has passed through the heavens. His work is complete. It was an efficacious 
effective work. And his mediatorial work continues until the consummation of our salvation when we're in his presence. He's now at the right hand of God interceding for us. And he gives aid to his children until they're brought safely into that eternal rest in heaven. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Therefore, hold fast your confession. But I'm weak. I'm a sinner. But your mediator wasn't a sinner. It says in verse 15, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The word for... At the beginning of verse 15 can be translated because. Here's another reason to hold fast our confession. We have a sympathetic and sinless high priest. We hold fast as we consider his person, Jesus, the Son of God, his place, he has passed through the heavens. But we also hold fast as we consider his pathos and his perfection. Pathos, that word has to do with compassion and sympathy. Sympathy. (laughs) We get pathos from that. Sympathetic. Pathos has to do with, again, compassion and understanding. So consider not only his person and his place, but his pathos. We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He knows what it's like to walk This earth, he knows the common trials and tests of living in a fallen world. He knows the temptations of the adversary, the devil. As a man, Jesus knows our humanity and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Consider that a moment, our weaknesses. We are weak. That's understood, that's agreed upon, isn't it? Yet so many times we live as if the opposite is true. But if you don't confess that you are weak, then you won't hold fast your confession. You won't go to a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We won't hold fast. We won't come to him for aid. We won't plead with him at the throne of grace. But we are weak. No argument is needed to prove this fact. We are filled with weaknesses. Could it be that you're struggling with sin and having difficulty persevering in the faith because you have lost sight of the fact that you are weak and powerless apart from him? Weak Christians turn to the one who is strong for help, namely our great high priest. And when we do, we find a sympathetic high priest. Here he says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So it's stated negatively, but stated positively, we have a a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize means to feel sympathy for, to be compassionate toward. Pastor Ernest, the King James says... (laughs) 
For we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Believers, we have a compassionate Savior. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. And his compassion is not just extended when you were first saved. In calling you to salvation, it continues forever. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all things as we are, it says. When he walked this earth, he was tested, he was tried, he was tempted. His body got tired. He suffered pain in his body. He suffered anguish in his soul. He faced the same fallen world that is in rebellion against God. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful boastful pride of life, they were all around him. He faced the same adversary, the devil. He had common temptations with us. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, we have a record of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, yet he did not sin. He suffered great anguish that we will never know. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he considered what was about to t- he was about to do as he went to the cross, so much that he... His sweat became like drops of blood, it says in Luke twenty two forty four. He was alone and abandoned when his disciples could not even stay awake to pray for a short time. He would be abandoned by them when he was arrested and placed on trial. He was falsely accused of sin. They lied about him. They beat him and scourged him. They mocked him and they crucified him. He bore our sin on the cross. Our Savior, our great high priest, has gone through much more than we ever have and ever will. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. If you find comfort and aid in that verse, rightly so, how much more in this one? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet without sin. We've seen his person, his place, his pathos, but consider his perfection. Yet without sin. Never a hint of pride. No sinful lusts. No sinful thoughts, no sinful motives, no sinful words. 1 Peter 2, 22-23 says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He didn't sin but he always did what was righteous. And he always entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. Yet without sin. A perfect high priest. Not one who had to offer up 
first a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people that had to be repeated over and over. But one who was the lamb, the spotless lamb, who laid down his life once. Our Savior was victorious over sin. If not, he could not be our Savior. If he were not victorious over sin, he could not come to our aid when tempted. He could not be the object of our faith. He could not be the one we cling to and hold fast to until the end. But he was without sin. All this leads to another therefore in verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the specifics of that verse are for next month. Before this evening, as we come to the table of the Lord and remember Jesus and his death, consider we have a great high priest. A great high priest. Supremely excellent. Insufficient. He is great in his person. He is exalted above all the high priests who came before, for they were a mere shadow pointing to him. He is infinitely greater in degree, glory, and power. He is great in his place. He's passed through the heavens, he's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and all this exalts his saving work. He's great in his sympathy and compassion. Never has there been such mercy. And he's great in his perfection, yet without sin. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession in light of our great high priests. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you Father for we have been adopted as your children through the work of the one who was made like his brethren in all things yet without sin. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, when we are weak, when we think our faith will fail, when we are tempted and tried, I pray that we would hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest. May we fix our eyes on him this evening. May we be stirred up to greater love for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.